My name is Kay Ashbrook. I'm a retired nurse practitioner, a mother of two, and the proud grandmother of four. My husband and I live along with our golden retriever and three cats near Richmond, Virginia. I love listening to Compelled. We live in a world that is broken and full of sorrow, pain, and regret. But these stories show the power of a loving Heavenly Father who delights to change lives that have been marked with hopelessness and despair into lives of purpose and profound joy. I hope that you enjoy listening to today's episode. I went before a judge. I had multiple, multiple burglaries against me, but I was sentenced for five of them. I was sentenced to five 99-year sentences. I was 19 years old. I'm Paul Hastings, and you're listening to Season 4 of Compelled, a seasonal podcast using gripping, immersive storytelling to celebrate the powerful ways God is transforming the lives of Christians around the world. Last week, we heard from Garrett Kelm, and for years, Garrett chased women, drugs, alcohol, and his own pleasures. But after being radically saved, he began serving the Lord as the pastor of a growing church. Yet Garrett carried a dark secret, an addiction to pornography. But as Garrett would discover, the same Jesus who came to save the sinner also came to deliver the saints. Again, you can hear that by tuning into last week's episode with Garrett Kelm. Today is our season finale. That's right, this is the last episode of season four. But we have a very big announcement to make about the future of Compelled. And trust me, you don't want to miss it. So please listen through to the very end of this episode for that information. Today, our season finale guest is Ron Adkins. At the age of 19, Ron was sentenced to almost 500 years in prison. Ron was filled with rage, becoming a prison gang leader, and eventually became so violent he was locked up in solitary confinement and told he would stay there until he died. Condemned by society and separated from humanity, Ron knew that he was utterly alone. Or was he? Lean in and join us for the season finale in this compelling story from the kingdom of God. I met up with Ron two weeks ago, just before Thanksgiving, at his home church in Burnett, Texas. Two things immediately struck my mind. First, I would never want to get in a tussle with Ron. He's tall, muscular, and built like a tank. In fact, his nickname in prison was Rhino. Second was Ron's humility and gentleness. It's hard to believe that a guy built like a rhinoceros could be so gentle or tender, but you'll even hear it in his voice. The Lord has given Ron a love for people, especially the broken. Ron has come a long way from where he first started, and his home life growing up in rural Texas was anything but gentle. I grew up in a dysfunctional home. My mother and father, they didn't think they could have children at first. They were, they were married for 12 years before I was born. And so my mother was told she would never have kids. But I was like a miracle baby. I was the answer to her prayers. And she's, she's a very sweet Christian woman. And she, uh, she was one of those people that you never heard a cuss word from, you know. Never touched any kind of drug or alcohol and, and just never had an angry word, never met a stranger, that type of person, you know, just sweet as she could be. My father was a Korean War veteran, and he was just really angry, and he had a lot of, 
I guess a lot of animosity from the war and stuff that he brought with him and maybe with some mental issues, you know. And because they had tried to adopt a child and and he had had like a breakdown or something and they took the child away from him. Oh, wow. So it was really tough. We just, I guess I was just too much like him. We always butted heads ever since I was a little kid. And uh, he was just real verbally and physically abusive and uh, just had a super bad rage problem. Even though my dad was the way he was, he still forced us basically to go to church because of my mom, I think. And so I knew about God, but I didn't know who God was. I just thought he was this big mean man, you know, in an Abraham Lincoln chair with a list of everything I'd done wrong. He was like my dad, he was ready to beat me over the head every time I messed up. I think one time when I was like 10 years old, I went, went forward in a church service because I thought I was supposed to and, you know, gave my heart to Jesus or whatever. But I did, it was never just a really, a real thing. It was just what I thought I was supposed to do type thing. When I got older, I started, you know, thinking to myself, I'm going to get out of here as quick as possible. I'm going to get out on my own, get away from home and do my own thing, you know. And so uh, that's what I did. I left and just started bumming around different people's places and get, got a job when I was 13 years old. And then uh, that's where I got introduced to drugs and alcohol, working at this horse ranch when I was 13. It wasn't long after that I got in with a you know, bad group of guys. I got We broke into a school in this little town where we were growing up, up, up near uh, Greenville, Texas. This is the, the school that you went to every day? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we had we were at a basketball practice or something, and we broke into school, and we ended up. That's how I got my first felony when I was 14 years old. After that, I was on probation, and I, I just I basically didn't care anymore. The drugs and alcohol got worse. Criminal activity got worse, and um, finally, when I turned 17, I started going to jail for real. First, it was DWI, and then. Some point there, I got involved in uh, breaking in, burglarizing, not only people's houses but like drug uh, houses and stealing, stealing drugs and money out of drug houses and stuff. And in the mid '90s, state of Texas decided they were tired of dealing with me. I went before a judge. I thought the most I was going to get was 25 years. My lawyer basically told me that's that's what he thought. You know, oh well, the worst they give you is a 25 years, you know, and um, I had multiple, multiple burglaries against me, but I was sentenced for five of them. I was sentenced to five 99-year sentences. I was 19 years old. Now, in case you didn't catch that, Ron just said that he was sentenced to five different sentences, each for 99 years. This was during the 1990s when Texas was going through an era known as tough on crime. There was very little leniency for criminal conduct, especially for repeat offenders. And unlike today, where oftentimes a prisoner will serve multiple sentences concurrently, these five sentences were to be served consecutively, meaning once Ron finished his first 99-year sentence, he would then begin the next 99-year sentence until he had finished 495 consecutive years. He had effectively been sentenced to life in prison as a 19-year-old. 
so what was going through your heart when you know they the judge I read just, out the sentence? I don't think it really sunk in until later on when I was back in my cell, you know, at the jail or whatever. That you know, it's over. I'm gonna be in prison the rest of my life. And it was, I was just sort of like in shock. I was very angry and I was very bitter, and and uh, they sent me to the largest unit in the state of Texas, this Cofield unit in Tennessee Colony, Texas, near Palestine. At the time, it was the most violent prison in the state. I learned real quick that I was gonna have to make a reputation for myself if I was gonna be safe. In prison, Mike makes right. And so the, the strongest, you know, gets all the respect. And since I was, I'm a large guy and I, I, could, I could be intimidating, I took on that persona, I took on it. You know, which really isn't my personality. It really isn't my character to be, you know, violent. But uh, I, I, I just became violent. It wasn't long, probably about, I've been there about a year, the white gang started coming to me because, you know, they look for the strongest to recruit. And so I, I eventually got in one of the most violent prison gangs in the state I became a member of. It's called Aryan Circle. Basically, it's just a, a white guy's prison gang, but it's also, you know, there's ideologies involved with white separatists, white supremacist type ideologies. At the time, the Texas prisons were going through a lot of integration, and there was a lot of violence going on behind um, integrating the prisons because for so long it had been segregated. Blacks stayed with blacks, whites stayed with whites, Mexican stayed with Mexican, and then very few mixing, right? In the early 90s, the federal government took over the prisons and integrated everything. And so these gangs all sprung up because of that. And so I became part of that gang. And the way you rise in the ranks of the of the gang is but through violence. The more stuff you do, the more work you put in, is what they call it, the higher up you rise in the ranks. And so I began to rise in the ranks, eventually to become a leader through several gang wars, riots, all kinds of different stabbings, all kinds of stuff happened. So yeah, you gotta, you gotta do whatever they set you up to do. Whether it's stabbing somebody or beating somebody up or, I mean, thank God I never killed anybody, but I mean, it was just by the grace of God that that didn't happen. And so I had a lot of guilt and shame behind that because I knew in my heart I did those things just to just to benefit me not not because I had to or or even wanted to but just because I knew it would benefit me reputation wise and and safety wise I mean it's really based in fear I know during all this time God had his hand on my life because there were times when when guys were supposed to stab me on the wreck yard and, and they would go and give the knife to the officers and turn themselves in instead of doing it. Oh, wow. Or uh, a riot would break out in a, in a day room I was in and and people would be getting killed all around me and nothing would happen to me. It was like a bubble would be around me or something. Barely, barely come out of there with even a cut or whatever. Looking back at it now, I know that it was God's hand on my life protecting me. I believe that with my heart. He, he, he was guiding me through all those years of prison. I used to persecute Christians or try to talk them out of being Christians when I was in, especially when I was 
be really feeding into my rage and anger issues and uh and i really didn't believe there was a god i i was real good at at uh putting the atheist argument up there you know telling them it was just a crutch and they just had jailhouse christianity and they needed something to make them feel good or whatever but that was me Within just a handful of years, Ron had made a name for himself as incredibly angry and violent. That's when the other prisoners nicknamed him Rhino, and the prison administrators and guards treated him accordingly. In 2000, I had had several assault cases and several, I'd also fought with the officers a lot when I was in prison because I rebelled against authority all the time. And so they were tired of dealing with me again. And um, they declared me a security threat to the institution and staff, and I was placed in solitary confinement. And I spent the next 13 years in a five-by-eight cell by myself. Wow. Administrative segregation is what they call it. You don't really interact. only people you really interact with is the other officers that, that take you out of your cell. You're handcuffed behind your back, and two officers escort you with clubs and shields. To wherever you have to go, like if you have to go to the infirmary or if you have to, or if they take you out for a recreation, sometimes you get an hour of recreation a day, but it's just going from a little cage to a big cage, basically. I mean, you, you have no other interaction with other people unless it's just, you know, screaming and hollering out through the vent in the back of your cell or something to the next guy in the next cell, you know. Once I got back there, my behavior got even worse because. My real problem was I hated myself. I had a self-destructive mindset, and I put myself in all these violent situations because I really wanted to die. I didn't want to do all this time. I didn't want to spend my life in prison, you know. But I, I felt like I, I couldn't commit suicide, but I was really suicidal. You know what I mean? I was always putting myself in these dangerous positions, like really hoping something would happen. And so when I got in solitary confinement, it was just me in there, and I was so I had no other distractions, and so for the first five years that I was back there, I was on the super high security, lowest you can go level three ad sig is what they call it. It's the bottom of the barrel in a prison. It's, it's there's criminally insane there. There's everybody that all the rejects. It's like the lowest section of the the solitary section. Right, they got level one, two, and three, and three is the lowest. Wow. You're restricted of everything. You basically have no personal property and and um, basically disciplinary type area. But my violence only got worse. Like I used to, whenever they would take you out for shower, they would take you out of your cell and handcuff you. I used to break out of the handcuffs and assault the officers. Had over 30 staff assaults. I would just attack anybody at any time without warning. It was just like a mindset that I was in. It was like a rage mindset. Like I was at war with these officers because, I mean, there, there were several times where they, they beat me up real bad, busted my face open, slammed my head into the brick walls, all kinds of crazy stuff that, that happened to me. They were just trying to subdue me. But I took it like personal vendetta against them. And so... That's the way I lived my life for five years in this personal vendetta against these officers. Ron was in a continuous cycle of rage, but he felt it was justified. Sure, he had committed some burglaries, but nothing that deserved 500 years in prison. 
and that made him bitter, which made him angry. And with a five-century-long prison sentence, there was no end in sight to the vicious cycle of anger. In 2005, my dad passed away. I didn't really expect it to affect me the way it did, but it really affected me. It was almost like a wake-up call. Like uh, maybe the Lord was just using it to uh, to wake me up out of this rageaholic stupor I was in, you know? And I got to thinking about my mom being out there by herself, and I was re- I was worried about what was going to happen to her as well. Mm. So the prison had a library where you could check books out. Man, I, I started just reading everything I could about psychology and philosophy, and um, I taught myself how to write poetry and iambic pentameter. And uh, <laughs> Wow. I taught myself about chess, and I started playing correspondence chess with people all over the world. All this stuff to keep my mind occupied and to uh, try to teach myself how to come out of this place of aggression and violence and and to uh, manage my emotions, you know, in a worldly way. Because I didn't by this time I didn't believe there was a God. I basically thought, you know, it's just us and there is no God. And I was off into like I, I started studying about pagan religions and and Buddhism and and Hinduism and all the different religions you can think of. I studied them just trying to find some kind of uh, some kind of switch to turn my anger off. So things went on like that for a while, but because my past behavior, I was still like on a blacklist, you know. So from time to time, the officers would still come and try to, you know, take retribution on me, try to fire me up and seem like it to me. They were trying to fire me up and get me to do something stupid. And usually it worked. And so... I got in more trouble and more trouble and more trouble. Finally, in 2009, they transferred me to a supermax prison up in Texarkana. It's a different kind of segregation where you're way more isolated. Everywhere you go, there's like three or four officers escorting you and you're chained hand and foot just to go to the shower or whatever. It's just like way more supermax is what they call it. When I got there, I immediately got indicted for a crime that I committed when I was on the Cofield unit that had happened like three, two, three years before that. It was for um, having a cell phone, which is called a prohibited item in a penal institution. And so I went back to court and they told me, well, we're following a habitual criminal because of all the felonies you've had and we're going to try to give you another life sentence. On top of the On five. top of the 599s. This blow was too much. Ron already knew that he didn't have a chance of getting out of prison. But to be told that he would be given yet another 99-year sentence was crushing. He couldn't muster the courage to commit suicide, but already, on the inside, he felt like he was dying. But unknown to him, hope was just around the corner. More on that after the break. The world tells young women to seek popularity, beauty, pleasure, or whatever will make them happy. Yet the more they chase after those worldly dreams, the emptier they become. That's why I'm excited to tell you about a special conference designed for mothers and daughters to encourage them that there is just one thing worth seeking after, Jesus Christ. The conference is called Seeking Christ and takes place at the Ark Encounter in Kentucky, September 20 and 21st. 
The conference is taught by Sarah Malley Hancock, the founder of Bright Lights Ministry, and includes skits, real-life examples, studies for moms and daughters to do together, and bonus sessions by Ken Ham and Martin Isles from Answers in Genesis. Plus, you'll get to walk through the full-scale replica of Noah's Ark there at the Ark Encounter, which I've actually done and is incredible. Young women will be challenged to seek the Lord first in their lives, deepen their love for God's Word, be rooted in their identity in Christ, gain vision for close family relationships, and shine their light brightly for the Lord. The primary focus is for young women ages 10 to 18 and their mothers, but of course women of all ages are welcome to come. Learn more at brightlightsministry.com. Again, that's brightlightsministry.com. You love Christian testimonies. Otherwise, you wouldn't be listening to Compelled. But imagine if you could enjoy Compelled stories from Christians throughout the ages, including those who've already passed away. Well, that's what our friends at YWAM Publishing are doing through their Christian Heroes book series by retelling the incredible stories of Christians like George Mueller, a man of prayer who ran an orphanage for 10,000 children in England who trusted God to miraculously provide food and shelter for those orphans, sometimes on a daily basis. Or Elizabeth Elliot, whose husband was murdered by the Aka tribe in Ecuador, but chose to forgive and move in with the tribe to share the gospel with them. Or Brother Andrew, who during the height of the Cold War smuggled Bibles to Christians behind the Iron Curtain, all under the noses of communist border guards who could have imprisoned him for life or worse. These are the types of stories that YWAM Publishing is printing, and their books are written for kids ages 10 and above, but frankly, adults love them too. They've published 50 of these biographies so far, and we just partnered with YWAM Publishing to bring you five of my favorite stories. These are the Christians that have inspired my faith and millions of others for decades, which include the three testimonies I just mentioned, as well as Corey Tin Boom and Amy Carmichael. We're calling it the Compelled Christian Heroes Bundle, and I actually worked with YWAM to select these five specific stories, and they agreed to drop the price in half just for Compelled listeners. So it's $30 and includes free U.S. shipping. To buy this bundle for yourself or to give to a friend, visit compelledpodcast.com slash YWAM. That's the letters Y-W-A-M, compelledpodcast.com slash YWAM. And trust me, if you love listening to stories on Compelled, you're going to love reading these stories too. Welcome back to Compelled. We've been listening to Ron Atkins share about his story of being sentenced to 500 years in prison as a 19-year-old. He joined a prison gang and became a violent prisoner, racking up hundreds of violations. He became so out of control that he was moved to solitary confinement and had been living alone in a 5 by 8 cell for the last nine years. But now, Ron had been charged with another violation, which this time the authorities wanted to sentence him to an additional 99 years effectively another lifetime sentence. For Ron, this was a death blow. Whatever meager hope he held onto for being released had vanished. He felt utterly broken, utterly worthless, and utterly alone. But he was about to discover that he wasn't. Well, I was in my cell alone. I guess the best way for me to describe it is it was like Jesus came in the cell with me. 
because the presence and power of God came in the cell. Like I didn't see him in person or visually, but I could just feel the presence of God in the cell. And I just began to weep. I hadn't even cried, I don't know, 15 years maybe. Because, you know, I always had that stone face, tough guy persona on, you know. But but you didn't even believe in God at this point. No. No. But I knew it was him. It was just overwhelming. I had an old Bible that I kept all the time. In prison, you had you had to have something you keep your addresses and stuff in. And most people just have a Bible because it's the only thing they can't take from you. And I had all my addresses written in it. And um, all the Old Testament was gone because I'd been using it for rolling papers. Rolling papers? Yeah, I've been smoking the Bible. <laughs> You'd been ripping out pages. Yeah, and using them for rolling papers, yeah. Because in prison, tobacco is illegal. They made it illegal, you know. So, but it still gets in there. And the best rolling papers they have are 10 pages out of the Bible. Yeah, I done ripped the whole Old Testament out of it, smoking it. That's how much I cared about God, you know. When I had that encounter with the Lord, I prayed. I said, God, I don't even believe you're real. I don't even think I can have faith. I've taught myself all this philosophy and psychology that says there is no God. And I read Nietzsche and, and uh, Frederick Hegel and all these philosophers, you know. I said, if you're real, you're gonna have to show me. And immediately, it was like just hot oil poured all over my body and it was like, I was just being baptized in love. And I took that old Bible and I began to read it. And I'd be just from, and the New Testament is all that's left in it. I began to read about how he, how he set me free, how he came to die and you know, he. He spoke to me and said, if it had just been you, I would have done it just for you. I would have came and died just for you. That's how much you mean to me. That's how valuable you are to me. Right? He's always coming and just showing me that he was there, that he was, you know, or he would take me back to events in my life. Hey, you remember when that, that guy was going to stab you and he gave the knife to the officer instead of stabbing you? That was me. You know, just all these things that, that he showed me that. But the main way was from his word. He just made it come to life like it never had before. The book of John probably the most in Romans too, but but for sure the book of John, just um, especially chapters uh, 13 through 17. Yeah. Where it starts with him washing the disciples' feet all the way to... Uh, the prayer that he prayed, you know, for us. Hmm. That's what he did for me. That's how I know it's true because, I mean, from the day I had that encounter with the Lord, I never, I never, over 250 major disciplinary infractions in p- prison. Zero good time, zero everything for years, over 12 years. 30 staff assaults, some with bodily injury. From the day I had an encounter, was never another one. Wow. Because <laughs> my identity changed. I didn't have to work on that behavior. My identity changed. From that day on, I never got another disciplinary case in prison. From that encounter with the Lord in 2009, from that day forward, there was never any, any more rage problem. There was never, it was like peace just settled on me and I was able to. And since I was at a different unit from where most of my trouble occurred, 
the officers didn't really know me. So I was able to just sort of fade into the background and just be, you know, like everybody else. Ron was a transformed man, but he still had to deal with the consequences of his previous decisions, specifically the violation for smuggling in a cell phone. So he struck a plea bargain deal, and instead of receiving another 99-year sentence, he received five more years, which now brought his total sentence to an official 500 years, because as you'll recall, his first five sentences were 99 years each. And while Ron's faith was now growing, he was still in solitary confinement, and he hoped to at least be transferred back to the general population. So he made that request. During that time, I had, you know, quit the gang. I was, I was put all that gang stuff behind me and and I was trying to uh trying to get into a program called the grad program that Texas offers called gang renouncement and disassociation program. And it's basically to be declared an ex-gang member by the state, you know. I had been praying one day and I was telling the Lord, you know, if this is going to be my life, I'll spend the rest of my life in this prison serving you. As long as I have you, I'm I'm good with it. Because for so long, you know, I had fought against that and I had I had taken on that time as my identity. Like I would tell them officers, man, I got five life sentences. You can't tell me nothing. I do I do whatever I want to do. All you can do is send me to death row and I'm I really don't care if you do that or not. And so I basically had taken it on as my identity. And um God began to deal with me and said, You got to surrender that to me. You got to surrender that. You got to surrender your reputation, because I was I was my prison nickname was Rhino. That was Big Rhino. That was my name. You know that was my reputation. Everybody knew you don't mess with him. He's violent, you know, and so he'll hurt you. And so the Lord just really began to deal with me about surrendering all of that to him. But despite surrendering his reputation over to the Lord. Ron's application for the gang renouncement and disassociation program was turned down. He was still sitting in the highest security level of solitary confinement in a supermax prison. The state of Texas still saw Ron as a confirmed gang member and wouldn't allow him to attend the only program that would let him renounce his gang membership in the state's eyes. And Ron also had that brand new five-year sentence. He might end up spending the rest of his life alone in a five-by-eight cell until he died. So Ron made the most of it. For the next three years, Ron kept reading his Bible and borrowed whatever theology books he could request from the prison library. Then, in 2012, something unusual happened. I was sitting there in my cell one day, and the officer came to my door, and he said, Come on, get dressed. Atkins, you got a parole interview, right? Well, I knew I wasn't even eligible for parole until 2095. That's 80 years from then wow <laughs> and so I was like nah you got the wrong dude that, that ain't me I ain't up for no parole he said oh yeah he asked me my number I told him 80, 39 I said yeah that's you come on so I went got dressed I figured it was a mistake you know a lot of times they make mistakes they call out the wrong person whatever so I go down there and the guy interviews me and I'm basically just joking my way through it being sarcastic and stuff because I don't think it's real you're just joking your way through your yeah. parole interview parole interview yeah the guy says alright we'll contact you with an answer later on I'll say oh, okay whatever <laughs> so I go back to my cell and I forgot about it 
Because, I mean, that happens sometimes. They call the wrong person out for a visit or they call the wrong person for an interview because you get names mixed up. It happens. And so I didn't think nothing about it. About two months later, I get a letter in the mail and I open it up and it says, you may parole on all five 99-year sentences at one time had them listed out. No way. Yeah. <laughs> and I was just blown away. I was like, what? This was in May of 2012. Because you're not supposed to get out until 2095. 20, yeah, I wasn't even eligible until 2095. So, so what happened? How did that happen, man? Nobody knows for sure. The best I could figure in 2007, they came up with some kind of law about consecutive sentences where all the sentences in their line, the only the last sentence in line is active or something like that. I can't remember exactly how it goes, but what it did was it made me make parole on all five of those sentences and start the five-year sentence that I had gotten in prison. I guess the truth of it is, for many years, I did live in hopelessness because I knew I wasn't getting out. And you didn't even pray that. It just didn't really cross your mind. No. I didn't dare to hope for it. So actually, the five-year sentence triggered all that. The new sentence actually triggered it all. But really, it was just God. As you can imagine, Ron was ecstatic. The impossible had just happened. After entering prison as a teenager and spending over half of his entire life incarcerated and believing he was going to die there, Ron was going to be set free. But he still had one more sentence, the five-year sentence, which triggered the review. And the parole board declined to grant him parole for that new infraction, which meant that Ron would still need to serve out the remaining time, which was about three more years. But Ron knew that if God could miraculously spare him from the rest of a 500-year sentence, but wanted him to stay in prison for another three years, then there must be a reason. Even though I've had this relationship with the Lord and I had been with him for these three years, I still didn't know who he was, really. I still saw him as that legalistic, mean, gray-bearded man in the Abraham Lincoln chair, you know what I mean? Ready to beat me over the head every time I did something wrong. That's not who That's not who the father is. Yeah. A few months later, I had been, like I told you, I had been signed up for this grad program, but they would never let me go because of my assaultive history. They said, no, you're never getting out of solitary confinement. You're going to be in solitary confinement until, until they let you out of here. And so eight months later, they told me I was on I was on the chain, which is a transfer bus, basically, what they call it, the chain bus. And um, they said, you're being transferred to Ellis Unit to the grad program. So I, I went to the program, and um, it's basically like a nine-month program, and they transition you. The first three weeks, you're still in, in solitary confinement, but then they the next three weeks, you get a celly. You know, somebody to live in the cell with you. So a cellmate. Yeah. And then the next three weeks after that, you transition into more of a general population type area. It's still kind of controlled, but but it's uh, it's more general population type where you go uh, go to the chow hall to eat and you go to the day room for a little while each day. And so they transition you. When you go to these classes too, like cognitive intervention, anger management, all these kind of secular classes, but God was using those to teach me especially cognitive intervention. And God used that secular class to, to really help me understand where my behavior was coming from. All these thinking 
that I had lived with for these 25 years had to be addressed and changed. And God, God used those classes to, to point them out to me, you know, so I could change that way of thinking. And without that, I wouldn't have never made it out. I would have never made it through that program. And so finally I finished the program and, uh, my mom got to come visit me and, uh, you know, I got to hug her for the first time in 15 years. Wow. Yeah. And it was just, it was just a real emotional, awesome moment. After having been absent from the general prison population for 13 years, many of the inmates were surprised to see Ron again. But they were even more shocked to learn that he was now a Christian. I guess the best way to describe it was they were just like uh, really not believing. You know, I mean, like I was just playing a game. Like I was just doing that to get through the program. and Because that's what a lot of guys do. They want to get out of SIG, so they say they're out of the gang and they go to the program and you know, but with me, it's a little bit different because I had all this. A lot of them knew me from fighting with officers a lot. You know, I had all this history of of this violent behavior, and um, they were just like unbelievable. It actually caused a, several of them, you know, I mean, to find the Lord just because of the transition in my life from from what I was before to what I am now. Several times I've had that happen. They'd be like, "Man, what happened?" You know. Tell me about it, and I would get to share my testimony about encountering the Lord, and they'd be like, wow, man, I'd be able to pray with them. And they would find the Lord through it. But God wasn't finished there. He sent me from there to the wind unit in Huntsville, Texas. And uh, when I got there, one of my friends, they had started uh, what they call a school of transformation. And it's basically like a Bible study type class. But this guy named Charlie and his wife Judy were coming in and teaching it there in the prison. And so when I got there, they were just graduating their first group of leaders and um, they were fixing to take like 60 inmates in the class. So I got to get in it. That's when I really started learning about inner healing, these places in your heart that are, that are still broken, that God wants to come in and heal if you'll just let him. And so we started having these groups, like eight-man groups within the classes, and we just started doing this inner healing ministry where we would just ask Holy Spirit to come and, and just really reveal to us what it was that was triggering us and what was what, where, where are the guilt and the shame that we were still carrying was, you know. And, and also God to reveal to us who He really is and and show us who we are and, and the way he sees us. And through that, I began to learn who my father really is. I began to learn that he's a loving father and that he cares about everything in our life and that, that we're valuable to him, you know, more valuable than we could ever know. And I never understood that before. I, I never thought I was valuable to anybody. I always thought I was just a mistake or I would never amount to nothing. I was always going to be a convict. I was always going to just be a number in the state system, you know. Through these classes and these interactions with these other guys and through Charlie modeling the love of the Father to all of us, I was able to come to a whole other realization about who God is. Wow. It changed, it changed my whole life. I don't think I'd be sitting here talking to you today without that class and that, that type of understanding of the Lord. 
And so I spent about three more years there. But it was May 5th, 2015, and I was released from prison. I wasn't really sure it was actually going to happen. Like a lot of times you get right to the door and they, they say, oh, no, we're taking it back. We're not going to let you go right now. But I knew, you know, I could finish that whole five-year sentence and, and they, would, they would let me go. And I was always worried about the parole on the 599s, too. Like, if I did something wrong, I might mess that up. Yeah. And so, like I said, I didn't really believe it till I walked out, out the gate. And my mom and my brother came and picked me up. And uh, it was just it was just wild. I mean, it was like waking up from a dream. Because when I went to prison, there was no internet. There was no smartphones. There was no, there was no debit cards at the gas pump. Really? Yeah. I mean, I went to prison in the mid-90s, and I got out in 2015. For the first time in 24 years, Ron Atkins was a free man. He entered prison as a 19-year-old, bitter, violent, and filled with rage. But he left as a transformed creation. But what happened next was beyond anything he could have imagined, which you'll hear about right after the break. Summer is here, and so is the chance to take a breather from school. And there's a decent chance that the subject your student is most excited to take a break from is math. But it doesn't have to be that way, especially if you're using CTC Math. Their focus is helping your student learn at the pace that's best for them. Every lesson is fully online with interactive questions and clear explanations. And their video tutorials take difficult concepts and break them down into digestible ideas. But here's the crazy part. They have a 12-month money-back guarantee. That's right. You can use CTC Math for an entire year. And if you don't like it or it didn't work out for you or if you're just unethical, which as a compelled listener, I hope you're not, then you just shoot them an email and tell them that you'd like your money back and they'll gladly refund your entire purchase, no questions asked. There is literally no risk for an entire year. You can't beat that because their heart is to serve your family. That's why they sponsor Compel, so that we can continue creating stories that will bless and encourage your family. And they wanna do the same for your students' math needs. So whether summer is a time for your student to catch up, keep up, or move ahead, CTC Math is there. Learn more at ctcmath.com. Again, that's ctcmath.com. If you like to stay up to date with current events, then you'll especially appreciate another podcast I enjoy called The World and Everything in It. It's a daily news program, about 30 minutes long, delivered every weekday morning by Christian journalists from around the world. And they aren't just rehashing the current headlines. They're actually doing investigative, boots-on-the-ground journalism while providing biblical cultural analysis. I started listening to their show about five years ago when we first launched Compelled. And since then, they've become one of my go-to sources for understanding current events from a biblical perspective. But they pull no punches. In fact, they tell the facts just as they are, even when it requires sharing uncomfortable truths. Maybe that's why they're one of Apple Podcasts' top 100 news programs. Join me and thousands of other Christians from around the world who listen to the world and everything in it. Just search for The World and Everything in It in your podcast app or visit WNG.org.
After 24 years in prison, Ron Atkins was miraculously released on life parole. The transition back to the free world was overwhelming at times, but Ron slowly fell back into a rhythm. Ron eventually got a job welding and running construction equipment, and he also got the chance to share his testimony with various church groups and ministries, which is how he met his wife today, Dawn, who also spent a lot of time in prison, but who was powerfully saved by the Lord and has her own compelling testimony of redemption. Ron and Dawn were married on December 24th of 2016, and they moved back to where Ron grew up in rural Texas. They were settling into their new life with each other when God opened yet another unexpected door. We were going to this little country church where I grew up. We were in there one day. This is about three weeks after we were married. And the pastor introduced me to this man. His name is Robert Newsom. And I, I was like, immediately it just struck me. He was like, man, I know that name from somewhere. I can't, I was just, it kept bothering me and bothering me and bothering me. Who is this guy? Who is this guy? But that evening, it finally dawned on me. That's the name of the judge who sentenced me to five ninety-nine year sentences. And he's actually a pastor. And uh, he had this little group of guys that were meeting in his living room. And uh, they called the ministry in one accord. It was from all different churches, but they were meeting for prayer meetings in his living room. Well, he was coming back to that little church to preach a message on Sunday. And me and, me and Don were there. And when the message was over, we went up to him and he was like, he looked up at me, he's a little short guy, you know? And he looked up at me, he's like, are we okay? And I was like, yeah, and I gave him this big hug, you know, cause God had already healed me in all those places of, of forgiveness, you know, through inner healing, through counseling with our pastors in Florida and different things. He had already, he had already brought me into healing through everything that happened in the trial. And he was like, the judge was like that day he said, man, why don't you and Don come to my house for these prayer meetings? So we started going in his living room every Tuesday and Sunday night and having these prayer meetings. And it was just like a bunch of people, other people that he had put in prison actually were there too. Wow. And yeah. And so we would just meet. It was like 20 or 25 of us in his living room just sitting on the floor worshiping the Lord and praying. And all of a sudden, all this stuff started happening. Like... uh the city officials from the jail where I was sentenced at, and they wanted to meet with us. And we went in front of them and they heard Don's testimony. They heard my testimony and the sheriff was immediately like, when can you come in my jail? So we started going into jail, ministering to the girls and the guys both in the jail. And, and God just started bringing revival in the jail and people started getting saved and set free. And then the meeting that was in the judge's living room went from 20, 25 people to 400 people. And they had to rent the Civic Center, which is the biggest building in the county, in order to have the services in it. And then they started the the jail administrator. He's a Christian guy, too. He was so affected by it, he started busing the inmates over to the services, which they're still doing right now today, and in their striped uniforms. They come into the church services and have church with us on Tuesday and Sunday nights. So God just really just birthed the whole revival type movement in that city just behind me, me and the judge's relationship. Ron can tell you so many stories about how God has been redeeming his time in prison and has been using Ron's testimony to touch lives and point others to the Lord. 
One of those times was at a marriage conference just a few years ago that Ron and Don led at the original prison, where Ron had been so violent and become a gang leader and eventually had been placed into solitary confinement. So there was an officer, when I gave my testimony during that marriage conference, there was an officer sitting at the back of the room, which usually they have an officer in the services, you know, in case anything happens, they have one there. And um, this was Mr. Jacobs. He was an old African-American man that been there at that prison for years and years. And back when I was there, he was on what they call the sort team, which is the, the team that they send in there and they put riot gear on. Whenever you're acting up, they send them in there to restrain you, right? And it's, there's six guys in full riot gear. And they spray you with tear gas and tackle you down, handcuff you and drag you off. And sometimes they beat you up, whatever they do. But uh, when I used to be back there causing all that trouble, he was one of the ones that would come to subdue me because he's a big guy. And uh, he was in the he was in the service that day. And uh, when I after I gave my testimony, he came up to me after it was over, after the service was over, and he was just crying, tears just coming down his cheeks. He said. Man, if I never knew there was a guy before, I know there's one now. Because I can't believe you're standing here telling this story. Because he remembered, you know, all them times they had to come in come in the cell and extract me from the cell and hog tie me and carry me off, you know. Yeah, it was a good story, man. He was overwhelmed by it. <laughs> so was I, too. As our interview came to an end, I asked Ron, what would he tell our listeners with a loved one in prison right now i would say don't give up keep praying keep keep talking to him about the lord keep uh just keep loving them and letting them know that that god loves them and that they're valuable to him and not to ever give up you know i wouldn't be here now if my mother hadn't prayed all them years prayer is powerful and god hears every one of them whether you see the results of it or not He's always working in your loved one's life. He's always working. I mean, if it's your son or your daughter, or your grandson, granddaughter, God cares about that. He cares about your prayers, and he cares about that person, and they're valuable to him. Well, Ron, I appreciate you sharing your story with me, man. It is something that I just find incredible to listen to, <laughs> just like the way that you can see clearly how God like preserved you in prison and is now using you to touch other people's lives. That's awesome. All right, man. Thank you. I appreciate it. When Ron was first sentenced as a 19-year-old for half a millennium, he knew that there would be no getting out and that all hope was lost. But it took almost 20 years of being locked up and a decade of solitary confinement before Ron would finally open up his heart to the Lord. And what a transformation it made from a violent gang leader to a prison evangelist. You know, it's so encouraging to see how God has used Ron's darkest moments and redeemed those to now touch and change the lives of countless others. Today, Ron and his wife operate Radical Restoration Ministries, which is a year-round Christian discipleship program for broken women recovering from addiction, abuse, or incarceration with homes in Florida, Indiana, and Texas. If you'd like to learn more about the Adkins or become involved in their ministry, then visit their website, RadicalRestorationMinistries.com. 
or visit compelledpodcast.com and pull up the show notes for this episode, where we'll include some additional photos of Ron, including while he was in prison. Now, at the beginning of this episode, I mentioned that this story is our final episode of the season, which of course may leave you wondering, when will our next season come out? Now, if you've been a longtime listener of Compelled, then you probably know that we take very lengthy breaks in between seasons. And that's because everyone who makes Compelled has a full-time job apart from this podcast. We've been making the show for the last four years in our spare time and as funding comes in. Well, each season costs around $12,000 to create, which is no small amount, but also nothing too large that God can't provide. And now we've got a very important announcement about the future of our show, though, which we'll be making during a live video hangout a week from now on Wednesday night on December 15th at 8.30 p.m. Central Time. And all of you are invited to hang out with us. You'll meet our entire team, including myself, my wife, and our editors. And of course, you'll meet other Compelled listeners. And who knows, maybe some of our previous Compelled guests will pop in too. This will be your opportunity to ask questions, learn about our production process, talk about the season, and all kinds of other things. But most importantly, this is where you'll hear our very big announcement. To sign up for that call and get the private video hangout link, visit compiledpodcast.com slash announcement. So put it on your calendars one week from now on Wednesday night, December 15th at 8.30 p.m. Central Time. And again, that link to sign up for the call is compelledpodcast.com slash announcement. This episode was edited by Zach Fowler and Will Jackson. Our media assistant is Ethan Adams, and our associate producer is Sarah Hastings. I'm your host, Paul Hastings, and you've been listening to Compelled. I hope to see all of you next Wednesday on our video call when we make our very big announcement. Trust me, you don't want to miss it. See you then. One last thing before I go, if you'd like to meet up this year in 2024, I will actually be on the road for a few events, either speaking or exhibiting at some conferences. I am still nailing down all the details, but already I know that I'll be at the Texas Homeschool Convention in Fort Worth from April 18th through 20th, the other Texas Homeschool Convention in Houston from May 30th through June 1st, the Home Educators Association of Virginia Convention in Richmond from June 6th through 8th. And there's also the chance that I might be at some other events in Louisville, Kentucky and Nashville, Tennessee later in the year, but we haven't finalized those details yet. If you live near any of those locations, then I'd love to meet you. You can also see our latest up-to-date calendar of events at our website, compelledpodcast.com slash events. And I hope to see you there.